I be, um, one, of the, one, of, one of my favorite subjects to read about and to study is, is leadership, right? Um, those of you, if you've perused my uh, book collection at home or if I've ever talked to you about any of my interests, you know that leadership is a particular interest of mine. I like to read books on it. I like to listen to uh, sermons on it. I like to read blogs about it. I like to talk to people about leadership. It's one of my favorite things to study. And one of, it's one of my favorite types of people to observe is leaders. No matter where I go, whether I'm in the grocery store, whether I go to another church, whether I go to a conference somewhere, whether it's a church conference or otherwise, I'm really just trying to figure out who's in charge here. It's not that I want to lodge a complaint. It's just that I really like to see who's in charge and how they're running the place. One of, my, uh, one of the things that I really like to do, I haven't shared this with anybody before, you're the first ones, is I like to go to churches, other churches, not just because I like to worship, and I do, but I really, when I go to a church, I mean, I, I have so many interests, especially as it relates to church, so I'm watching all sorts of things. I'm watching the musicians, I'm watching the media and, you know, how they do their graphics. I'm watching almost everything, but one of the things that I really like to watch I like to watch the leader. I, gotta, I like to figure out who the preacher is, who the pastor. I like to figure out who's running the show. And I like to watch him, not so much when he preaches, but I like to watch him when he's not preaching. Not so much when he's on stage, but I just really like to sit back and observe the preacher when he's not preaching, when he's in the audience. Perhaps a worship leader is up there and worship is going for the. Perhaps somebody else has the stage. And I really like to watch what the preacher does, what the leader does when he's not leading. And often what I find is that the preacher is disconnected. Maybe he got his phone out. Maybe he's got his hands in his pocket. Maybe he's just kind of reclining in the chair while the church is just erupted in worship. Oftentimes I find that the guy who's running the place, the guy who's setting the example, who's setting the tone, is not quite following as you know, he would expect when he's on the stage. And I watch these things happen over and over. And when I watch... You know, in various other circles, in various other places, how leaders lead or how leaders uh, fail to lead, I'm often struck with the reality that leadership may be overrated, may be something that we might focus on a little too much. And as much as I love leadership and as necessary as it is, I think that leadership often takes center stage and what gets neglected is the importance of followership, followership. As after all, no leader is a leader without followers. They said if you're, if you're leading, you think you're leading and nobody's following you, you're basically just taking a walk, right? But leaders need followers, and because of this, followership, in my opinion, is perhaps more important, if not equally important, as leadership. And I found that not only do leaders need followers in order to be leaders, but I found that the best followers make the best leaders. I'll say that again. I found that the best followers tend to make the best leaders. And as a pastor of a church that we're trying to grow and we're trying to multiply, I'm, on, I'm constantly on the hut for, for leaders, right? And one of the things that I'm looking for, obviously, is people who can take some tasks or take broad directives and carry those out people who have influence, people who can sort of, sort of get things done and can communicate with people and rally people around the cause. I'm looking for those things. But more importantly, I'm usually looking for how well a person follows. How well a person follows. 
how well they can get behind somebody else's vision or somebody else's dream or take orders and understand where they fit on the org chart. I'm mostly looking for how well a person follows. And I think, like I said before, that the best leaders make the best followers. But there's tons of things in this culture, there's tons of things in this world that we can get pulled in all these different directions. And a very important, in fact, a necessary question to ask and answer is, well, who should I be following? Who should we be following? If followership is important, perhaps more important than leadership, who should we be following? And I think if you're smart and if you're wise, you'll come up with a short list of people uh, that you should be following. But I think at the top of that list, for the Christian at least, should be Jesus. At the top of that list should be Jesus. And I don't mean that in some ambient, philosophical, theoretical sense. But that I, re- I mean that in a serious, nuts and bolts, boots on the ground sense that followers of uh, the Christians, those who seek to enter the kingdom of God and thrive there, should um, press in to follow Jesus. And one of the things that you find in the scriptures as you look, particularly at the life of Jesus, you see that Jesus always had people following him. You had people following kind of from a distance, just kind of peeking in, trying to see what was going on. And you had a people, a group of people who were really closely following Jesus. And those people were called his disciples. Now, to be a disciple is not particularly a Christian word, but it takes on a strong Christian sense, particularly when we apply it to the scriptures. The formal definition of disciple is a follower or a student, uh, a, a follower or a student of a leader, of a particular leader or a particular philosophy. As it relates to the scriptures, a disciple is a personal follower of Jesus during his life, especially the 12 apostles. And I think that if we look at the gospels and even look beyond the gospels and we see the life of these apostles and particularly how they follow Jesus, I think that we can stand to learn a whole lot from them, particularly as it relates to what it means and what it looks like to be a disciple, to be a follower of Jesus. These guys certainly aren't an example of perfection, because if you studied the scriptures, you know that they were not perfect at all, in fact, far from it. But they are great examples of what it looks like to follow Jesus and to wrestle with what that looks like and to do that rather imperfectly. I have the privilege this morning of beginning a brand new series that we're simply calling Come, Follow Me. And if you look at the interactions uh, that Jesus had with these people that followed him, these disciples, if you will, Jesus often compelled them to come with this phrase, come, follow me. Now, that's a pretty open-ended, you know, request, or that's a pretty open-ended command. And, you know, it has a lot, you know, leaves room for a lot of questions. But Jesus says, come and follow me. And in this world where all these things are pulling on us, all these really good things, all these noble things, it's hard to figure out sometimes what exactly we should be focusing on, what we should be following, right? And then Jesus comes along and gives us something concrete, something solid, something life-given to follow. And he says, come follow me. Jesus offers us, as it were, true discipleship. And one of the things I really like about true discipleship is that it takes a lot of the guesswork out of life. It takes a lot of the guesswork out of life. And I mean, so many people, so many good people, so many smart people, so many people with their stuff together, 
that really have serious questions about what they should be doing with their life. What avenues should they be walking down? What should they be pursuing? A lot of good and smart people are just clueless, are puzzled about what they should be doing with their life. And when I search the scriptures and even when I look at my own life, I see that being a follower of Jesus in a deep and abiding way really takes a lot of the guesswork out of life. We follow a Jesus who is not indecisive about where he's headed. And basically, he simplifies our life by saying, come and follow me. Come do as I do. Live as I live. Love as I love. Speak as I speak. Refrain from the things that I refrain from. Come follow me. And Jesus, in this whole concept of discipleship, in a Christian sense, offers us simplicity to life that we can't get anyplace else. Simplicity to life that we can't get anyplace else. And I tell you, that's one of the main things that I like about Jesus. One of the main things I like about this Christian faith is the simplicity that it provides. I didn't say it was easy. That's another thing altogether. But the simplicity of this life of discipleship. And this series that will last for a couple of weeks is designed to show us what it looks like for us to really follow Jesus. And I'm calling this first installment simply Jesus is Calling. Jesus is calling. It's important to know. It's one of the first steps in discipleship is understanding that the living God is calling you. It's beckoning you. It's motioning for you to come and follow. And the question is, will you answer? A better question is, how will you answer? Right? Because when Jesus calls us, we all have an answer. You may not say anything, but you certainly do something and you either go or you, you run and go the other way, right? Jesus is calling us, will you answer? How will you answer? And we'll focus on that for the next few weeks. I think, by the way, it's a fantastic follow-up to the three or four sermon series that we've engaged in already. We talked about going all in. We talked about generosity, not just with our money, but with our whole life. We just finished this whole series on the whole in our gospel. And I think to draw into clear focus what it looks like to be a real follower of Jesus is absolutely necessary. So we're going to spend some time looking at that. We're going to start this morning in Luke chapter 5. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn to that. Some of you have your phones this morning. If you don't have either, uh, the, the words, the scriptures will be projected on the screens. We're looking at Luke chapter 5, starting at verse 1. Can I please have some water? Uh, Hospitality, please. Um, Luke chapter 5, start at verse 1. Let me pray first. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for this opportunity to stand before your people and to bring your word. I thank you, Lord, for those that have gathered here today um, to hear uh, what you would have to say, Lord, and not just to hear, but to respond in faith to the things that you call us to. And Lord, I pray that these words today would be clear I pray that they would cut straight through to the heart. I pray, Lord, that you would limit distractions that would keep us from uh, misunderstanding or missing what you would have to speak to us today, Father. And I pray that you would put power on these words that you've given. May your word come alive today. Lord, would you move the preacher out of the way this morning so that your truth and your light may shine through. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 5. Thank you, David. Start at verse 1. One day as Jesus was preaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, great crowds pressed in on him to listen to the word of God. He noticed two empty boats at the water's edge, for the fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. 
Stepping into one of the boats, Jesus asked Simon, its owner, to push out into the water. So he sat in the boat and taught the crowds from there. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Now go out where it is deeper and let down your nets to catch some fish. Master, Simon replied, We worked hard all last night and didn't catch anything, but if you say so, we'll do it. I'll let down the nets. Uh, I'll let the nets down again. Excuse me. Verse 6. And this time the nets were so full of fish they began to tear. A shout for help brought their partners in the other boat, and soon both boats were filled with fish and on the verge of sinking. Verse 8, when Simon Peter realized what had happened, he fell to his knees before Jesus and said, Oh, Lord, please leave me. I'm too much of a sinner to be around you. For he was awestruck by the number of fish they had caught, as were the others with him. His partners, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were also amazed. Jesus replied to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be fishing for people. And as soon as they landed, they left everything and followed Jesus. Another interesting story in the Gospels about Jesus and this encounter that he's had with his disciples or what would, what would turn out to be his disciples. And one of the main characters in this story is Simon Peter. And basically what we see in this impactful and powerful story with plenty of stuff to pull out is an invitation from Jesus to Simon, Peter, and the others to be full-time disciples. If you look at Mark chapter 1, you see that Jesus had encountered these guys once before, and they even went with him for a little bit. But this is a separate encounter. It often gets confused with kind of a, you know, the same encounter just told by, from a different perspective in a different gospel. But this is a separate second encounter that Jesus has with these guys. And this is an invitation that he gives them to come and be full-time disciples. Jesus says, let's go tear it up, man. I want you to come with me so we can fish for people. And I think this passage, like several others in the scripture, is a great picture of Jesus calling these guys. And I think when we look at this particular picture, we can see a picture of Jesus calling us. Jesus calling us. And Jesus drawing us into himself. And Jesus calling us into full-time faithful service with him. Not full-time in the sense that, you know, you'll quit your job and maybe pastor a church or something like that. But to follow Jesus with your entire life, leaving everything at the proverbial shore side. And Jesus today is the focal point of our, of our um, the sermon here today. And I think two very important things jump out. And those two things I'll explore this morning. There's tons of stuff in here. I could pull out a dozen or more things, but I don't have time for that today. But there's two specific things. As I look at Jesus and his interaction with these guys, two things that I'll pull out. And we'll wrap this all up with a nice little bow at the end here, right? The first thing I see is that Jesus knows the difference between a crowd and a disciple. Jesus knows the difference between a crowd and a disciple. And it would do us well to learn the difference between a crowd and a disciple. Jesus, of course, did mighty miracles. When he opened his mouth to speak, thousands of people would draw onto him to hear the words that he would speak. Jesus had become famous in many senses, and he'd become also a bit infamous as well. He had many, many enemies, but Jesus was no stranger to drawing a crowd. He's no stranger at all to drawing a crowd. 
In fact, if you look through the Gospels, oftentimes you say, and the, the people were pressing into Jesus, and the, they followed him from place to place, and Jesus would sort of try to get it away just to get a nap or just to grab a bite to eat, and there the crowds were. There the crowds were. And Jesus was very familiar with the crowds. He's very comfortable in his own skin in front of the crowds. But Jesus understood that there was a major difference between the crowds and those disciples that will give up everything to follow him. And one of the main differences between the crowds or a crowd and disciples are, you know, the crowd has, has an agenda. <laughs> the crowd usually has a self-serving agenda. They're usually looking for something, right? They're usually looking for something. They're perhaps asking, what's in this for me? What can I get out of this? And these crowds are no different than present-day crowds. We, we just happen to have YouTube, so we can be a little more voyeuristic, right? But these guys wanted to know, generally speaking, what's the fuss about, right? You're walking down the street, and some guy that you've known to be blind for his whole life is walking perfectly. He's seeing, you know, he's dancing through the streets. And you say, man, what happened to you? Well, that guy, Jesus, healed me. Really? Jesus healed you? Well, my back's been hurt. Maybe if I go over there, he might touch me as well. Oh, man, this guy, Jesus, he's preaching over there, man. He's saying that he's the Messiah, you know, the one the prophets talked about. He's saying he's somebody special. He's saying he's the son of God. Really? Let me go check that out, right? Maybe there's something in it for me. Maybe I'll go and be a person in the crowd. Maybe I'll be a part of this spectacle, Right? Or thousands of people come back with full bellies after going to hear this guy preach. And they say, listen, there was only a couple fish and a couple loaves, but this guy, he kept breaking it and breaking it and breaking it. And somebody goes, well, I'm hungry. You know, I, I want a meal that I didn't pay for. Maybe I'll go and hear this guy preach and maybe there'll be lunch afterwards. Right? Oftentimes, the crowd was pressing in. With, a, with, with an agenda, right? Now, I don't want to demonize the crowd today because oftentimes the disciples were in those very crowds, right? I just want to make a difference, a distinction between the crowds and those that emerge as true disciples, as true disciples. And these crowds have not disappeared. These crowds exist today. Thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people have resigned themselves to be spectators. Flocking to conferences, playing thousands of dollars, buying plane tickets, hotel rooms to go and sit in the seats. And what might this great speaker say to us? What might these fantastic musicians play for us, whip us into a frenzy, make us feel good, and then we go back to being who we were before? Thousands of people, millions of people flock to churches, large and small, to sit in the crowd, to hear something and to, to, to consume and to take in very few of those people offering their life sacrificially to God to do whatever he wants to do. And the basis of whether or not those people stay engaged or they stay connected or they stay in the crowd or keep coming back is, you know, what's in it for me? You know, I didn't really like that preacher's sermon. He got off to a real rough start today. Or oh, I don't like the paint in the children's room. Those toys are at least 10 years old. 
Or did you see that? Or did you hear that? I just, I don't think I can, I don't think I can go to that. And it's always about what can I get? It's always about what can I get? There's a difference between a crowd and a disciple. The, disciple, the, the crowd is in it for what they can get. The crowd is spectating. But even as disciples emerge from this crowd, there's this distinct difference between a crowd and a disciple. And the major one is that the disciple obeys. The disciple obeys. Now they all get to hear the word of the Lord. They all get to see the sermon, hear the sermon. They all get to hear Jesus talk, right? But when Jesus engages a disciple and asks them to do something or commands them to do something, the distinguishing mark of a disciple is that the disciple obeys. And Jesus, in this short 11-verse chapter, gives Simon Peter a number of opportunities to show obedience. And I think it's important to note here that Jesus doesn't have any natural authority over Peter in this exchange. You know, Jesus doesn't outrank him. Jesus isn't some government official. There's no real reason why Simon Peter or anyone else should listen to Jesus in a natural sense. But Jesus seems to possess, and Simon seems to be aware that Jesus possesses uh, 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 some type of authority that's kind of out of this world. That's not quite, you know, bestowed upon him by some natural government or some natural uh, uh, body. But rather, Jesus has authority perhaps from heaven, perhaps from God. And Jesus starts to give Simon Peter these series of requests, a series of commands. And I just think that Jesus was saying, is this guy going to do anything that I say? Is this guy going to do anything that I say? If I'm interested at all and if this guy's going to follow me across the world through dangers unknown, through angry mobs trying to kill me and they eventually will kill me, I want to see if this guy's just going to maybe follow the slightest thing that I ask him to do. In verse 3, stepping into one of the boats, Jesus asked Simon, its owner, to push out into the water. Jesus walks up and says, hey man, I'm going to need your boat as a preaching platform. Why don't you push out a little bit so I can, you know, get a little bit far from the crowd so they can hear me. Why don't you do that a little bit? And guess what Simon does? He does it. He obeys. He says, why not? And Jesus taught there from the boat. Verse 4, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, now go out where it is deeper and let down your nets to catch some fish. Wait a second, Jesus. You, you know, I, I was kind enough to lend you this boat so you can preach from it. But now you're telling me more things to do? And not only this, Jesus, who is a carpenter by trade, is telling fishermen, professional fishermen, how to fish. <laughs> professional fishermen how to fish. Jesus says, I know you guys have been working at this for a long time. This is your trade. You saw your dad doing this. You're experienced fisherman. Uh, but why don't you go out into the deep and, and do some fishing? <laughs> Verse 5, Master, Simon replied, and I'm just adding my own kind of inflection on that. Master, okay, listen, listen here, Lord. We've worked hard all last night and didn't catch a thing. We've worked hard at this. You know, we don't usually fish during the day. We fish at night. We don't fish in deep water. We fish in shallow water, Master. But if you say so, we'll do it. And if you're having trouble discerning perhaps the tone here, uh, many of you husbands know, 
you know, you're interacting with your wife. She's giving you suggestions, right? And you say, honey, we, we talked about this already. And nevertheless, dear, if you say so, I'll do it. And how many of you have been in that situation before where you just felt like, you know, I can't really say no here. Um, let me just do this so this can be over, right? <laughs> I don't deal with that personally. I'm just... <laughs> well, I mean, if, this, if we follow the logic of this story, I guess sometimes she's right. But if you say so, Simon says, I'll let the nets down again. Now, when Jesus gives this guy, I don't know if Jesus says, let me test this guy, but it sure looks like a test. Three requests in the span of this, you know, opening part of this story, each one more significant than the first. A series of escalating requests or commands to see what this guy might do. And I imagine that as Jesus is watching this guy's response, he's watching his reaction, even though there might have been a little bit of reluctance, even though there might have been a little bit of pushback, maybe in his tone, maybe in the way his eyes looked, Jesus saw that Simon Peter begin to comply with these requests. He began to obey. In other words, he began to see that Jesus was the authority here. Even though he had no natural authority, even though he had no earthly natural expertise as a fisherman, Jesus was out of his element in, in a natural, natural sense. But yet at the top of verse 5, Simon Peter refers to him as master. Master. And even if his actions uh, don't sell that he's bought into this, his words refers to Jesus as master. And the word uh, uh, suggests submission. And that he puts himself under Jesus. And he complies with these series of escalating requests. And in all of this, Jesus just kind of wanted to know, can I pull you away from what you're currently doing? Can I ask you to change course? Can I ask you to redirect? Can I borrow the stuff that's yours? Can I do what I want to do with your life? Can I come to you and make requests? Can I come to you and make commands? Can I, can I pull you away? Maybe for a second, but maybe for the rest of your life. Can I pull you away from what you were doing? And Jesus says, listen, I know you went to school for that. I know you're still paying off the loans for that. But can I pull you away from that and redirect you? I know you got a lot of time and energy wrapped up in that relationship, but can I pull you away from that person just for a second or maybe forever? Can I, can I pull you away from that? Will you come? Will you follow me? Will you go? And I found that this is often an early assessment that Jesus does when he's trying to separate the crowd from the disciples. When he's trying to separate the masses of people who presumably come to see what they can get out of the deal from the people who come to lay down their whole life and let Jesus drive and let him take control. There's a distinct difference. And usually the starting point is Jesus is just saying, hey, give me that. Hey, let me use that. Hey, come away from that for a second. Hey, do that differently. It's usually the very beginning and I found that disciples aren't the best and the brightest guys, right? I mean, you used to think that. 
That the preachers and, you know, the people who were truly devoted, that God was looking out over the landscape and saw the best and the brightest. Oh, this guy's really sharp. Hey, you come over here. You follow me. Oh, this guy is perfect. Let me look at, look at the part in his hair. He's beautiful. Bring this guy over here, right? These people really have it together, this, that, and the other. And, and as I really just examine who the people who are the most influential in the kingdom the people who really have just given their lives to Christian service, the people who I admire and people who mentor me, they're extremely broken people. Extremely flawed. Some of them not the best looking. Some of them not the best speakers or communicators. Some of them not with a whole lot of influence, a part of their you know, contribution to Christian community. So all of a sudden I'm seeing that you know, Jesus isn't selecting the best and the brightest. He's just kind of working with the fools that keep saying yes and keep showing up. <laughs> so to be the fantastic disciple, you don't have to be sharp and slick, you know, good looking and have all the answers and have it all together. You just got to keep saying yes. You just got to keep showing up. When bad stuff happens and disappointments happen, you just, you just keep showing up. And John Wimber, who is uh, one of the founders of the Vineyard Movement, was often saying, you know, I'm a fool for Christ. Who's fool of you? In other words, we're all a fool to something. We all will give ourselves to something. We all go for something. Wimber just said, I just happen to be a fool for Christ. I'm changing his pocket. He can spend me any way he wants to. And those are the words, those are the utterances of a disciple. Somebody who understands that I just... I just got to keep saying yes to this. And Jesus knows the difference. And we ought to know the difference. And some of you, if asked, you'd have to come clean about the fact that you're just kind of in the crowd today. You're along for the ride. you're, You're here because of what you can get. You're here because it makes you feel good to be here. Because you like the music and, you know, the preaching's okay. And your kids like kids' church. You're here today, you know, as a consumer. You're in the kingdom as a consumer. Your life's better now than it was before. And as long as that works out, as long as we keep down this path of, you know, life getting better, you know, in this whole church community thing, I'll keep coming. I'll keep showing up. And if that's you, then you're in the crowd today. That's not a terrible place to be. It just shouldn't be your final destination. It shouldn't be where you camp out for the rest of your life. It shouldn't be the model that you teach for your children. Because the crowd, they don't make other disciples. The crowd's not sharing their faith. The crowd's not sacrificing and laying their life down for others. Okay? The crowd is just coming. They're enjoying, they're grazing, they're tasting, if you will. But the disciple says, listen, this is something This is bigger than me. This isn't about me. This isn't about me. This is about something bigger. Where are you today? Are you in the crowd or are you a disciple? Second thing that Jesus understands is that Jesus knows that his plan is bigger and better and more awesome than what you're currently doing. His plan for you is far superior to what you're currently doing than what you're currently up to. God's plan is so much bigger than what you're doing right now. And when he comes calling... It's basically saying, I want to radically change your life. Better yet, I want to give you the life that I planned for you from the very beginning of time. 
from the very beginning of time. God's plan is bigger and better than what you're currently doing. I guarantee it. Even if what you're doing is really, really cool. Really, really awesome, right? Even if what you're doing is legitimate, legal, you know, it's on the level, it's noble, you know, God's plan for you, even if you're on the right track, is far better than what you're currently doing right now. And Jesus is almost daily finding us where we are, whether it be tending our nets, you know, or tending our vocation or what we get paid to do. Raising a family, right? It's a stay-at-home mom or stay-at-home father. Whatever you're doing, Jesus is daily engaging us and saying, hey, you going to follow me today? You going to come along for a ride? I know that last ride was, it was wild. You going to come again? You going to sign up again today? What he's got planned for us is so much better than what we're up to. Like I said, even if it's cool, even if it's legitimate, even if it's noble, even if it's honest, especially if it's not all those things. God's plan is so much bigger and so much better. And Jesus knows that. And I think he takes some steps in this particular encounter to show uh, Simon this through this particular power encounter. And a power encounter is simply an encounter that somebody has with uh, Jesus or a follower of Jesus where God demonstrates his power in an effort to get the person's attention. We always say that when we minister and we, when, we, when we flow with the healing gift or with the prophetic gift or any gift, that the gift is not the main deal. The gift should not take center stage. But rather when a person's healed, what Jesus is saying, you know what, whatever I did for whatever that, that thing that was broken, let's say you got your leg healed. Listen, what I did for your leg, I want to do for your whole life. What I did for your leg, I want to do for your whole life. That healing, don't, don't get swept away in that. That's awesome, but that's what I want to do for you. And if I can do that for you, your whole house will be blessed. And everybody that's connected to you will be blessed. That's what I want to think. I want to bring the kingdom to you. And this is what Jesus is demonstrating in this power encounter with Simon Peter on his boat. As he's cast him out into the deep and this huge haul of fish has come in, right? Went on his turf and showed out. Now, if there was any doubt that I'm the man, Jesus would say. You know, after your nets are breaking and your boats are sinking, after you've tried it your way all night long and you are, this is what you get paid to do, then maybe you want to give what I have a try. Maybe you might want to lean in a little further and listen to what I might say to you. This is a power encounter that Jesus is having. And it all started with Jesus making a request and Simon Peter being obedient combination of those two leads to this powerful encounter with Jesus and it's a great foreshadowing of what might happen if Simon would trust his whole life to Jesus so that's just a taste man this is just a taste dude we haven't even got started with this thing you think these fish are impressive man just come and walk with me come and walk with me And Jesus, in showing his power in this way, proves that he's trustworthy and capable of being a master and being a great discipler. We see that Jesus is dealing with this and he's showing these guys, like, listen, this is going to be fantastic. What I have planned for you is awesome. And basically what he says to Simon Peter is, listen, you're a skilled fisherman. Maybe not today you're not. But you're a skilled fisherman, but basically what I want to take you and show you how to do is be a fisher of people. 
And to teach you how to be a fisher of people. And it's interesting how many fishermen Jesus had on his roster of disciples. It's interesting how many fishermen he went after that he had in his core group of guys. And to me, it speaks to, uh, it speaks to the understanding that God re- really knows what he's doing, right? He really knows what he's doing. One of my favorite passages of scripture is Psalm 139. The psalmist just sort of lays his heart bare and just kind of talks to God and just kind of reflects to God who he knows him to be. And this is what the psalmist says in Psalm 139, verse 13. He says, you made all the delicate inner parts of my body and you knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. Now, this isn't just poetry here. Although it's beautifully written, this isn't just poetry. This is the truth. This is the psalmist saying, you know what? I just didn't come on to you, you know, come to your attention as you happen by the shoreside here. I didn't just come into God's, you know, view, vantage point. So when I, when I came into church and all of a sudden God said, oh, look at this, there's a new person here. I wonder what, I wonder who they are. I'd like to get to know them. This passage speaks of God's foreknowing who we are and who we're going to be. It speaks of God's involvement in who we are made to be, shaping us, shaping the circumstances of our life, knowing who we will be, knowing what our likes will be, our dislikes will be, knowing what great experiences we'll have and even what the terrible ones will be like. This speaks of God being super involved in who we are and who we'll become. And a God that has a knowledge like that is more than capable of, of being followed, of being trusted with our lives. A God that has that intimate knowledge, the vantage point, and that the specifics of our heart and the specifics of our life is worth, worthy of being trusted. And here, you know, Jesus is encountering these disciples who are fishermen. They know about bait and they know about what time to fish and how to catch stuff. And Jesus just says, listen, You're good at catching stuff, but listen, just take all you know about fishing and all you know about luring, all you know about attracting, and all you know about gathering these fish, and just let's just superimpose that on the things that are most important, and that's the souls of men and women. Those are the targets of what God is pursuing, and that's people. That's their heart, and that's their devotion. And I think it's amazing how when I look at my own life, how I see every job that I've worked all the good experiences, my family background, good, bad, and ugly, God is using almost every ounce of that as I do what I do today. It's almost eerie to consider these odd jobs that I did here and odd encounters that I had. They're all working together for me to do what God called me to do. And let me tell you, no matter how good or bad this thing goes from day to day, I feel like I'm doing what God put me on this earth to do as I stand before you to preach. And as I leave this church, I feel like I'm doing what God made me to do. And I can see God's hand in it all along the way, good, bad, and ugly. 
And when we put the understanding of that into, you know, we put those pieces together, we understand that God planned for us. That didn't just start when you walked into a church. Didn't just start when you decided to tithe or when you started to go to small group. It started before you were even born. That the God of the universe who saw you even then, who formed your most delicate parts in the darkness of your mother's womb, God knew you then and his plan for you is as perfect today as it was then. Even though some of you have gone astray, even though you've done things that may made you take the roundabout way, some of you took some detours, right? Some of you made choices and decisions and even the sin of other people have caused some detours in your life. And I don't believe that God caused all of those, but the brokenness and fallenness of this world, sometimes the sins of others deeply impact other people. But God is sovereign and he's green. And what I mean by green, I mean that God recycles even the most uh, uh, terrible situations and uses them for our good. And if you really believe this, then you've got to believe that God has a fantastic plan for your life. I didn't say easy. I didn't say easy. But he has a fantastic plan for your life. And everything about you, God will use for his greater glory and for the, for, for, for the benefit of those that he's called you to reach and he's called you to serve. Jesus knew exactly who he was encountering as he climbed in that boat. He knew exactly what his reply would be to each of those questions. And finally, as we sum up this passage, Jesus says, listen, uh, you know, come and follow me. Come and follow me. Come and follow me. Lay down your life. Lay down your nets. And if, if I were the disciples, I'd be like, you know, can I just go sell this fish real quick? I mean, this is a lot of fish we just got. <laughs> can I just go cash this in real quick? Jesus says, no, come Come follow me. So as soon as they got to shore. As soon as they got to shore. And the implications of that far reaching. They left two boats full of fish, right? Zebedee, the dad, is like, where are you guys going? We got work to do. We got to clean these. And they left everything to follow Jesus. And I think that tells us something. I think when we look at Jesus and see how he engages us, how he encounters us, and what he asks of us, and what he's looking for, I think that might help us be better disciples. So what's the big picture here? The big picture is this. The big picture is this. I think Jesus is calling us to come out of the crowd. He's calling us to come out of the crowd. And in the context of what I've spoken about today, particularly describing what the crowd is and who's in the crowd, and usually what the crowd is looking for, And the level of engagement that the crowd has, many of us would say, you know what, I'm in the crowd today. I'm a bystander. I'm a spectator. I'm a consumer. And that's different from being a disciple. And so God would challenge you to come out of the crowd today. And for some of you, the Lord would say, you know what, you've been around for too long to still be sitting in the seat that you're sitting in. Been around for too long to still be spectating. And the Lord would say, you've received too much of my goodness just by showing up to just kind of hang out in the crowd and to just kind of spectate. Jesus would say, you know too much. You've heard too much. And it's not going to be another sermon that's going to just jumpstart you and say, okay, I want to be a disciple. That's not how it's going to happen. It's going to be you saying, you know what, I've, I've tasted and I've seen. 
And I know that this isn't about me. And I know that what God requires from me is everything. He wants me to lay down my life. He wants me to understand that this isn't about me, that the life that God has for me is so, so much sweeter than what I'm dealing with what now, right now, even if what I have right now is really, really sweet. And that what I'm forfeiting is, is just, it's, it's shameful to leave that much money on the table. It's shameful to just walk away from what God wants to offer me. Not only that, there's people that God has called me to minister to, that he's called me to bless, that he's called me to reach, that I can't do that from the crowd. I can't accomplish that from the crowd. I can't be a blessing to others in the way that God expects, in the way that God wants from the crowd. I can't do that from the crowd. And some of you would say that the reason you stayed in the crowd is because you just really don't believe that God's plan for you is all that great. You don't believe that it's all that great. And perhaps some of you got confused with, you know, looking over the fence and seeing what somebody else has, had, has and seeing how sweet that looks and how perfect that looks and how, how great it must be to be them. And you look at what God has given you and you look at what God has put in your hands and you go, well, maybe God just gave me the leftovers. Maybe he gave me the scraps. Maybe he's on a lunch break. Maybe he's angry with me. Maybe he doesn't want to show me his favor. Maybe, maybe this and maybe this and maybe this. But I'm here to tell you that we all need to realize that God's plan for you is awesome. It's awesome. Not by the world's standards, not by Joe's standard or Susie's standards, but God's plan is awesome. Everything that he put inside of you and everything he's given you and everything he's walked you through was for the purpose of preparing you to do the thing that he put you on this earth to do. We say it every week is that we're people of divine purpose. Put on this earth not to have a great life and not to have lots of fun and not to secure all the trappings of this life, but to love God and to love people. Realizing that we were made by God and for God. And Rick Warren says, until we figure that out, life won't make sense. He says, until you figure out that you were made by God and for him, then your life won't make sense. You'll say, God, this life is broken. This doesn't work. Or you're trying to use it for something that it wasn't designed to be used for. Of course it won't work. You're trying to hammer in a nail with a sheet of paper. Of course that doesn't work. I didn't make that for that. And the Lord will say to many of you today that what you're doing with your life is so frustrating, is so unsatisfying. And Jesus will say, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't call you for that. I didn't call you to just sit around. I didn't call you to just hang out. I called you to go into the thick of this thing and make a difference in your life and in the life of others. That's what I called you for. Jesus wants us to realize that his plan for us is absolutely incredible. How will you respond to that today? Worship team, you can come up. How will you respond to that today when Jesus comes calling, when he comes knocking? How will you respond? How many of you would say, man, I got to come out of the crowd. I got to come out of this crowd today. I got to pursue Jesus and say, Lord, I'm yours. Whatever you want. I'm your fool today. I'm spare change in your pocket. Spend me how you want. And others of you just say, man, I just, God's plan is awesome. Even though it doesn't seem like it, it's It's awesome. And I will just trust in that. I will believe in that until I start to feel that inside. Where are you at today? How will you respond? Jesus is calling. Will you answer? Let me pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. 
Thank you so much for your call. God, and I'm so thankful that you're just not looking for the best and the brightest. People who seem to have it all together and who looked apart. Lord, I'm just thankful that that's not your criteria. That's not what you're looking for. Lord, I'm thankful that you use whoever would just step forward and say, God, I'm yours. You can use me. You can reroute my life. You can can call the shots here, Father. I'm glad that that's what it takes to qualify. And all we have to do is say yes to you. And Father, I just pray that each and every heart and each and every life here, Lord, will be surrendered to you today. That we will realize, God, that our lives are not our own. That we were made by you and for you. And that we would come into a place of understanding that, Lord, so that we can move out and be who you've called us to be. Lord, as we work through this material in the next few weeks, Lord, I just pray that more transformation would happen. Lord, would you shine the light of your truth on every corner of every heart and every life here, Lord, and and make us the people that you are proud of, the people, Lord, that you can use, and the people that you use, God, to extend your kingdom in this community and around the world. Lord, we submit ourselves to you. We say, have your way in this place. Have your way in us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.